Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Larry Stutzrain, Director of Research for the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to our nuclear deterrence series. This series uh, seeks to keep nuclear deterrence requirements at the forefront of public discussion. Looking back at the last 30 years, there's been much delay in recapitalizing the US nuclear capability. On the other hand, from 2010 to 2025, Russia will deploy some 21 new types of nuclear platforms now over 90% complete, while China has nearly one dozen such systems in production and under deployment. In short, both nations have surged the modernization of their nuclear capabilities. The US nuclear enterprise, of course, is the backstop upon which we deter the nuclear existential threats to our nation and allies. However, our first new platform will enter service only near the end of this decade. The Air Force operates two legs of the nuclear triad, comprised of land-based ICBMs, strategic bombers, and sea-launched ballistic missiles. To examine this important security enterprise, uh, we have with us today, Lieutenant General Jim Dawkins. General Dawkins is the Air Force's Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Deterrence and Nuclear Integration. That involves providing the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief with direction and guidance for the Air Force's nuclear deterrence operations. Thank you so much for joining us today, General. I hope you're doing well. Well, good morning, I am doing well. Happy uh, Thursday to everybody out there. And big thanks to the Mitchell Institute, uh, General Deptula and, and you Stutz and the team that put this together. And again, a welcome to all the folks out there in virtual, virtual land. Hey, this is an important and timely discussion. Uh, there's a confluence of events going on right now that are, are really key. Uh, the threats are increasing and our adversary capabilities are increasing at a pace that we've never seen before. We also have a simultaneous modernization of all three legs of the triad and the NC3 system, all at the same time. And of course, this is we have a new administration that's coming in and reviewing all of this, uh, determining what way they what, uh, way they want to go or what direction they want to go with uh, regard to the threat and the triad. As A10, you mentioned this a little bit, but my role really is to ensure that the chief and the secretary and the people I engage with either over on the Hill or in OSD or in forums like this, um, that they have the latest data on the Air Force's uh, posture and the Air Force's contribution to the strategic deterrent. The way I like to uh, have these discussions is sort of, a, I have a, a framework I use and it won't take long to work through this. Some of this will be, uh, you will definitely have heard, the audience members will have heard some of this, but it, it starts with the threat which drives policy which drives strategy, which drives capabilities. And this is all constrained by arms control agreements, such as New START, which has just been extended. Typically, what you know, that's the way it should work. It should start with the threat again and go from left to right. A lot of times, people have discussions and they want to enter this from the right side of the equation and just talk numbers or ticker capabilities. And you know, if you go from that and you try to drive it from a numbers discussion to a uh, uh, strategy discussion to a policy discussion, and how would you be able to address a threat like this? Uh, you may end up with a less effective deterrent, and you may end up with less leverage for arms control negotiations. So that I, I want to uh, do next is sort of break down that framework. So with a threat, Admiral Richard, uh, of course, he he had two days of testimony on the Hill um, the last uh, this week. You know, he talked about how the deterrence landscape is increasingly complex. We have two nuclear-armed adversaries with increasing capabilities. Again, the first time we've seen this, 
And these aren't just you know, the, the uh, typical triad capabilities. These are new capabilities, new novel weapon systems. Uh, Russia, specifically, is 80% complete with its modernization efforts. And we haven't even started. Uh, they are working on novel nuclear weapons, nuclear-powered cruise missiles, uh, nuclear-powered submarine or, or torpedo-type weapons, things that aren't covered by New START. They've got hypersonics. Moving to China, China is, of course, uh, working towards a triad. And while they've been known as a lesser case, a minimum deterrence model, we, we expect their stockpile to at least double by the end of the decade. And I think they're going to posture for a different type of posture. While they may say they're minimum deterrence and no first strike, uh, that's not where we see them headed with their fourth posture. Of course, we have North Korea, definitely a threat out there. Uh, and Iran, and the, the administration is currently working to, um, to convince Iran to forego nuclear weapons proliferation and development. But as or more important than these capabilities that I've briefly touched on is really the intent and the doctrine that these countries have for how they would use the weapons. And most concerning is Russia. And, and Russia doesn't seem to, uh, they seem to really quickly blur the lines between a conventional and nuclear capability particularly with their non-strategic nuclear weapons, which they have thousands of that aren't covered by new stuff. So that's the threat in a, in a nutshell. So that should drive the policy. And what's important to remember about this is that the policy is set by the president. And while the president certainly can have an impact on how many carriers we deploy and how many battalions we move around the world, he doesn't take the, you know, his fingerprints on, on the policy documents like they are on nuclear weapons as a nuclear weapons enterprise. So he not only sets the uh, posture and the doctrine, but also the declaratory policy for this. And he signs those, those uh, documents out. Typically, it's after an NPR is conducted. So a new administration comes in, they, they conduct an NPR. This, this administration will do so uh, soon, I, I uh, expect. But what I think you'll see is what's happened, uh, similar to previous NPRs, is that you'll see more continuity than you will change. That's not to prejudge what the administration will do, but I think what they're going to find is the difference between the 2010 Obama NPR and the 2018 Trump NPR. The big differences are between then and now is that the threat has gotten even worse in just three years from 2018. So again, NPRs are marked more by continuity than change. But again, the president will decide what direction he wants to go. The key for the Air Force and the services is to realize, is, uh, for the team out here uh, in the uh, session here, is to realize that regardless of when the president gives a direction on where he wants to go and he asks the Air Force and the Navy to provide those forces, the Air Force has to ensure that whatever we put out in the field, it's safe, it's secure, it's reliable, and it can effectively deter. And that's becoming increasingly challenging with the age of our weapon systems. So threat drives policy, which drives strategy. Right now, the triad is the current strategy. That's what we use to address the threat. It has been that strategy for several decades. It provides the President of the United States with several different types of options to, to secure and defend our nation from existential threats, from threats uh, from nations who could threaten our existence as a nation with their nuclear weapons. It has complementary attributes. You know, the subs are uh, survival, ICBMs responsive, bombers, flexible, and, and of course, signaling. These are all uh, words that have been used for, for several decades to describe the, uh, the triad and what it brings to the fight. Allows us to hedge for uncertainty, whether that is a technical breakthrough that might make the ocean more transparent, 
therefore putting the, the subs maybe at a greater risk than they are now. We don't know if that could happen in, in the, you know, the next 5, 10, 30, 40 years. It also hedges against technical failures. If we have an issue with one leg of the triad, the other two legs of the triad can, can cover down uh, on, the, uh, on the rest of the strategy while that technical issue is fixed. Uh, and it also protects us against strategic surprise or breakout, like you could argue we're seeing with China. Uh, another key thing to uh, point out about our triad and how we modernize is we're just modernizing basic capabilities that we've had for decades. We're not coming up with new novel weapon systems like the Russians, uh, like the Russians are. Uh, the adversaries definitely recognize the benefit of the triad as well. You know, again, China moving towards the triad. Russia's had one for years. But again, ultimately the president will decide what our force structure looks like after a thorough examination. So threat drives policy, drives strategy, drives capabilities. And as you mentioned, the Air Force is responsible for two-thirds of the triad and 75% of the NC-3 system. Uh, real quick facts, ICBMs, or the Minuteman 3 put into the field in 1972. It's 50 years old now. It's going to be 60 years old by the time GBSD replaces it. Well, what's lost in a lot of folks with, um, with the Minuteman 3 and GBSD discussion is we're talking about more than just the missile. There's the silo that goes that the missile goes in. There's the, the, the supporting infrastructure, the generators, the backup batteries, all the cooling, heating, all that equipment just to take care of the missile. Then there's the launch control center that has to be uh, uh, redone. Then there's the, the facility that takes care of the security forces and all the folks that are out there in the missile field out in the middle of, of uh, Montana, Wyoming, uh, Colorado, and, and North Dakota. Uh, all of that is the weapon system. It's not just the missile. So all of that needs to be uh, replaced. Uh, all those things are showing their age. And that's a key piece, again, that gets lost in this debate sometimes. GBSD, that's what's going to replace ICBMs. I want to point out that it's hit every major milestone on time. It is a model acquisition program for the Air Force using digital engineering, open mission system architecture, and the government will own the tech baseline. Again, a model program. Moving to our bomber fleet. Right now, the nuclear bomber uh, or the dual capable bombers are 75 B-52s and 20 B-2s. Of course, we have our B-1s, but our B-1s are not nuclear capable. That number of bombers are further constrained by New START Treaty. So not all those are, are nuclear uh, certified bombers. The B-52 is 60 years old now. We're looking to go and extend it to, a, to 90 to 100 years. While that's a great, it sounds like a great accomplishment, it's also a very telling story about the age of our Air Force fleet and how uh, really to get it out to 90 years, we're going to have to replace engines, we're going to have to replace the radar, we're going to have to re uh, replace some column systems. The B-2, it's 30 years old now, and it's going to be replaced by the B-21. And, of course, the standoff capability, our nuclear weapons standoff capability, currently is the Air Launch Cruise Missile, fielded in 1982, replaced by the Long Range Standoff, or LRSO. In the, uh, in the 2030. Of course, the Navy's got submarines that are 40 years old. They're being replaced uh, by the Columbia class and NC-3. We've got to sustain, modernize, and transform that system because uh, that's probably the most important part of this whole uh, enterprise. The challenge is because the, our nation has deferred modernization several times over the past 20 or 30 years, delivering these programs on time is critical to our strategic deterrent. Uh, but again, I want to reinforce all the Air Force programs are on track. 
So, you know, concluding, the nuclear threat that we're facing is increasing every day. And we've got to maintain a deterrent capability that deters our adversaries and, just as importantly, assures our allies now and in the future. So, hey, thanks for the opportunity to speak today. I look forward to the questions. That's an outstanding uh, rundown on the situation, and we appreciate so much your leadership uh, in this time where there's so many vectors coming together at the same time. And of course, we have a budget coming up, General, uh, this budget round. And we know that uh, nuclear deterrence is going to be scrutinized. And we're again seeing uh, a lot of froth, public debate about whether the nuclear triad can be reduced. And, and you referred to its pieces being reinforcing, but there's a bumper sticker out there, you know, quote, the triad is not sacred. There's not much analysis, of course, under that bumper sticker, but it's about eliminating one of the legs of the triad. And of course, uh, the topic comes up right away. It's the land-based ICBMs. How do you see that? Well, well hey, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of a debate. Uh, there you're on, I can't hear you any longer. Can you hear me, General? I can hear, I can hear you now, so. Okay. Uh, so, hey, I'm a big fan of the debate. I think we need to have a national debate. It's something that we uh, have not had in the, necessarily in the past. And these weapons are so important to our defense of our nation that it's good to have this debate. But I'll caveat that with it needs to be an informed debate. And that's the challenge, particularly with the secrecy, uh, the veil of secrecy that surrounds some of this. But, you know, I don't think you have to have that veil of secrecy to really understand, you know, you can do, you can understand what the triad provides without getting into the classified details. Um, the way I would describe the triad is that it, uh, it is the bedrock of national security. It underwrites every operational plan out in every combat command that we have. It provides, uh, it basically underpins uh, diplomacy. It provides assurances to our allies. It's in that way, it, it helps for non-proliferation because allies that don't have nuclear weapons don't feel compelled to have to develop their own because they know that the United States will be there for them with our deterrent. Uh, I talked about in my open remarks how the triad, again, covers the threat, provides the president uh, various response options, again, to defend our nation against the existential threat. And, and of course, the hedge. I won't go uh, back into that. Turn to the ICBMs in, in, uh, specifically. They're critical to the triad in, in the fact that they are responsive. Uh, they, again, you know, the president can decide to use them or not. Uh, they are stabilizing. They help add to strategic stability. Uh, and they create a, a great targeting challenge for an adversary. They really are a high, it provides a high barrier to entry for any country that would want to threaten us because they would have to use such overwhelming force to take out our ICBMs. And that deters them from even thinking about it. So that, that actually, to my earlier point on strategic stability, that enhances strategic stability. Uh, so preservation of the triad to include the ICBMs is critical to our strategic deterrence. Again, if the administration wants to go in a different direction, that's up to the president to decide that's his risk to accept. Uh, but if the decision is made to stay with the triad, which that's what I, I, I hear is sort of in the offing, again, it's going to be incumbent upon the Air Force to ensure whatever we put in the field, again, is safe, secure, reliable, and effective. Uh, very good, General. Uh, you know, what you said earlier in your opening comments, too, is uh, 
so reinforcing that we're in an era where any capability can be leapfrogged uh, because of the nature of technology and the speed of innovation these days. So that, uh, that broad kind of ability to make sure one piece isn't overtaken, you could still have the other two legs to try at. Very, very interesting uh, perspective on that. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, you know, some of those same skeptics are also pushing line of thinking, GBSD uh, could be canceled or delayed and we could uh, give Minuteman 3 a service life extension. Uh, is that a cost-effective capability relevant solution? In short, in short, no. Uh, you know, we have analysis, an analysis of alternatives that was done back in 2014. The Obama administration realized that we needed to, uh, to modernize the deterrent. They looked at, hey, should we life extend Minuteman 3 or should we go with a new system? So they do the analysis of alternatives. And what that found, uh, the conclusion that came to back in 2014 and reaffirmed at every milestone that we've had for GBSD since then is that it is more expensive to life extend Minuteman 3 than it is to continue on with GBSD. Uh, you know, the question comes, well, can you life extend the missile? I talked about this a little bit earlier. There are elements of Minuteman 3 that you can life extend. Uh, but again, there are elements of Minuteman 3 that if you want to life extend them, you're going to have to stand up a new supplier or vendor base. There are parts on this, in this total weapon system that have not been produced since 1972. And you've got to go find a vendor, a, a defense contractor willing to, first of all, they're gonna to have to figure out how to redesign this part using technology that was based on the 60s. And they're gonna to have to determine what's cost effective, what's the number that they would need to produce for it to be cost-effective for them. And I, I, uh, that's the reason the AOA looked at this and said it's more expensive, actually, to life extend Minuteman 3, because GBSD allows us to take advantage of current technology and current manufacturing capabilities and digital acquisition and digital engineering and all those things. Uh, again, I think Adam Richard talked about there's, there's some switches out there that uh, we don't even know how to make those anymore. Nobody makes those. You know, there's a, we use a modem right now, a modem... For those that don't know that, that's how you, you use the phone lines to pass data, uh, not fiber like we do for our internet or wireless. They use a modem to transmit the missile maintenance status back to the main headquarters. I don't know that anybody's making modems. Maybe they are, but I'm sure they're charging a, a pretty penny for them. So what's, I think the most important piece about this is if you like extended Minuteman 3 at greater cost than GBSD, at the end of the day, no matter how many times you have to life extend, which we've already done a number of times, you end up with a 1972 Minuteman 3. Many of us have had to make that trade-off of, hey, do we limp along our old car, continue to take it into the uh, auto the auto shop to get it fixed, continue to have to um, uh, repair you know, all those things that we have to do, or do we go with the new car, the new car that has lane, lane assist, that has collision avoidance, that has airbags, that has analog brakes that have all those uh, pieces and parts that we take for granted now and provide increased safety and security for our families. Uh, the decision is pretty easy because it's typically cheaper to buy that new car than it is to continue to limp along that, that, 20, that 10, 20, 30-year-old car. Sometimes those cars, they don't even have the parts. Uh, they're not made anymore. So uh, 
why would we want to spend more money for Life Extend Minuteman 3 and not have increased safety, not have increased security, not have increased effectiveness or increased reliability that we're getting to do Yes. Yeah, that makes it makes tremendous sense. Uh, let me let me seg to a different topic, related topic. Uh, in recent forms, I've, I've I've heard you talk about NC3 being your top priority. Although I think everything right now is a top priority for you in the nuclear enterprise. But uh, you know, it's important to reassert uh, the relevance of NC3. It was last modernized, uh, I think, 1980s or so. Uh, what will NC3 modernization mean for the effectiveness of our nuclear deterrent? Well, you know, NC3, if there's one bipartisan issue uh, that everybody can jump on and, and support, it's NC3, because whether you have 10 or 1,550 nuclear weapons as you know, dictated by a new start, without a uh, reliable and secure NC3 system, you really don't have a deterrent. And so, like you said, the last time it was really modernized was in 1980. So no matter what we do, that has to be modernized. So we've got to sustain what we have. We've got to keep the programs on track that we've had in, in, the, in the pipeline for several years now uh, to modernize what we currently have. And then we've got to look at STRATCOM is doing to our next generation of NC3. Uh, what will be really important is to ensure the weapon systems we have are able to account for all three of those. I mean, you know, the, the legacy systems we have, the systems that are already in the pipeline, and in the future systems. Going back to GBSD, it's going to be a very easy to implement any uh, current or future systems on the GBSD because of the open mission system architecture and the fact that the government owns the, the data rights. And it's very modular in the design. Uh, all that will you know, increase the effectiveness of our NC3 system or GBSD. With our bombers, again, we are working hard to, to uh, put new capabilities in space, put new capabilities, uh, and, and of course sustain what we currently have. But all the NC3 enterprise is very complex, and it's gonna take some time to, you know, to continue ensuring that it is always there for our worst day so that no matter what, the president can get his uh, direction down to the force. Let me uh, just to follow up on that uh, is is the NC three modernization uh, interwoven with the GS GBSD program or are they clearly they can be modernized separately or fielded and modernized sep separately? So the GBSD program is taken into taken into account uh, the current legacy NC three systems. And the ones, again, the ones in the pipeline. And again, it's got the hooks, if you will, in for any new capability. That's because, of, uh, again, the way that the digital acquisition program is working to allow for, you know, we'll be actually able to allow other vendors to compete, to come to the table and say, hey, I've got a, a way we can do NC3, or hey, maybe we can take some elements of the JIT2 ABMS and use those elements that make sense, incorporate that into GPSD. But, Unlike previous programs, you know, with the way that GBSD is being acquired, it's going to allow for easy insertion of new technology. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks for that. I was a little curious how, uh, from your previous comments, but we uh, moved to cyber attacks. They're increasing on, uh, on all military weapon systems, whether nuclear or non-nuclear associated. 
And as we move to uh, new systems and modernization NC3, what steps are being taken to ensure that that command and control system is secure against those cyber attacks? Cybersecurity is being baked into any new systems that, uh, that we're developing. Cybersecurity and I'm sorry, if you're still talking, maybe we've got a lag on the video. Did you have any no. follow up there? No, okay. no, I didn't. General, go ahead. Okay, so again, cybersecurity is being baked in from the very start on all of our new programs uh, on MC3 and the, the rest of the, the programs, whether it's GBSD or the B21 or other things. Uh, of course, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess it's fortunate that our systems are so old that they predate uh, the ability to be susceptible to cyber threats. You know, when, and we just got rid of a floppy disk about a year ago when some of our systems. And, you know, this, a lot of these things were developed before we even had the Internet. And so it's been easy in the past to ensure that they were defendable from a cyber standpoint because they, couldn't, they didn't have any access areas, if you will. But as, again, we transition to this next, uh, to our new NC3 systems and even the next generation of NC3 systems, that is being considered and baked in from the start to ensure that, again, uh, we are not vulnerable to, to cyber infiltration. Oh, very good. Uh, one criticism of GBSD is that, uh, and we have to kind of thread this out a bit, based on its flight trajectory, uh, which would take it over Russia, uh, that GBSD missiles would be destabilizing to use against uh, the DPRK or China. I instead, some argue the U.S. would have to rely on our bomber-launched Alcoms or SLBMs to counter the threat. How would you respond to this criticism and what ways would GBSD work to deter nuclear threats from North Korea or China? Well, I would push back. Uh, I don't believe that GBSD, well, first of all, whether GBSD or Minuteman 3 is gonna be the same flight path or, or ballistic missiles. I push back on the, the thought that it's destabilizing. In fact, don't believe me, you can go uh, talk to arms control negotiators who have been there with, with Russia and others negotiate arms control treaties who say that ICBMs and the way we have the triad posture right now adds to, to strategic stability. Now to your specific question about, you know, a, a scenario, what a scenario with North Korea or China, you know, context is everything. Context is everything. So. You know, we have means, if, if ever the president were have to make that fateful decision to, to use a, a nuclear weapon sometime, we have means of talking to a host of world leaders to ensure people understand our intent. And I'm sure that the president would use whatever means he needed to to ensure that everyone understood our intent. So, again, I, I don't believe they're destabilizing. I believe the triad, again, brings a host of capabilities that if a president was concerned about that, then he could use the bombers and he could use the subs but again uh, it's it's a lot of flexibility that we provide him with all those capabilities yeah, yeah great flexibility so we've talked to, enough about gbsd but uh, you also handle of course the bomber side of nuclear deterrence the triad can you talk to us about how the b-21 america's next stealth bomber is going to help shape uh, our future nuclear deterrence posture you bet. Well, you know, just a reminder to folks about our current bomber situation. You know, we've got um, 141 uh, bombers, and that's 
B-52s, B-2s, and B-1s. That's not a lot of bombers. Yeah. Uh, of course, the B-1s are not nuclear capable. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have just a, a small number of uh, B-2s and, of course, B-52s for the nuclear piece. These systems are very old. Uh, we're moving to a future force, though, of 75 B-52s and no less than 100 B-21s. And the B-20, you know, it's no less than 100, but we're really hoping for about 145-ish B-21s um, because we think that the bombers are just such a valuable part of our nation's defense, not only from the nuclear standpoint, but just as important from the conventional standpoint. And I think for the audience, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's been a lot of uh, press out there about the bomber task force doing the different dynamic force employments. Basically, uh, I think we, we look bigger than we actually are because we've got bombers that are able to, to range across the world unimpeded by, um, you know, places to land. Basically, they can take off from the United States, they can fly tankers, and they can strike any target on the globe and come back to the United States. So they don't need basing rights like so many of our other platforms need. So if you really want the definition of long-range fires, or what we call long-range strikes, the bomber already provides that capability. Uh, the B-21 will only enhance that. The B-21 is going to uh, it's not the B-2.1, it's the B-21. It's going to have increased capabilities over even our current stealth, uh, stealth aircraft. It will be in greater numbers, which will be much uh, more helpful. It will be able to hold any target at risk, whether that's uh, penetrating an adversary's airspace or using uh, other weapons uh, that uh, would be integrated onto it later. So, again, we're really excited about the B-21 program. It's on track. Uh, it's doing well and uh, looking forward to when it enters the enters the um, equation here. Well, good, uh, General. Uh, here at Mitchell Institute, we're going we're gonna to try to get you 200 of those bombers. I know you could use all you could get. Hey, um, I saw you mentioned this earlier in your comments, and we saw that uh, Admiral Richard, the commander of US Strategic Command, uh, that testimony you gave this week, uh, that there's a need to bring bombers back on nuclear alert if Congress was to cut the ICBM force, can you talk about what it would take to bring that bomber force back up to a posture we probably haven't seen since the end of the Cold War? Well, you're exactly right. We haven't been on alert since uh, President Bush, I believe, pulled us off of alert back in uh, the early 90s. That doesn't mean that we don't do exercises to practice what it would take to generate a bomber to nuclear alert. We do that several times here at our bomber bases. But we're on that exercise alert for just a, sh a few short days. Now, could we do that in extremists for a longer time period? Certainly. But at some point, at some time period, we are going to uh, uh, basically exhaust the force. Uh, and we can't do this steady state. We cannot do this forever. So we, we need a couple. We really need a study to look at that. I hate to say use the word study, but we would need to take a hard look at what it's going to take in terms of manpower. But I'm pretty sure you're going to need more aviators. You're going to need more security force folks, more maintainers. Yes. You're going to need more bomber. Uh, you're going to need uh, some infrastructure improvements as well at the alert facilities. Uh, and you're going to need more tankers. Because, you know, a bomber without a tanker on alert is, is not the same. You're going to need an increase in tankers as well. And when you have those increases in bombers and increases in tankers that are going to be sectioned off for the nuclear um, for nuclear alert, 
you're going to take away from what we have uh, going back to the bomber task force. You're taking away from our conventional capability that we provide the other combatant commanders. So, uh, and Admiral Richard knows this uh, so well. It sounds real simple. Hey, let's just put our bombers back on alert. But it's not so simple. And this gets to the idea of transfer costs. When anybody mentions uh, getting rid of a leg of the triad, I think that they always just focus on that specific leg and how much money that will be saved. What they don't talk about is you don't change the policy or the strategy. You're just going to transfer the cost of covering down on that, the areas that uh, weapon system is covering down on. You're going to transfer that to the subs. So would you have to buy more submarines? Those are very expensive. Would you have, again, I talked about, would you have to buy more bombers? Uh, and, and I don't know the answer to that question, but I think there would be a compelling uh, uh, argument for, yes, you would have to buy more subs, or yes, you would have to buy more more bombers. And yes, you have to buy more, all the things that come with that personnel. Yes, you have to buy more nuclear weapons and more missiles for the subs. So going back to the earlier discussion, we talk about, um, you know, the triad. You can't just talk about it in individual pieces. You've got to talk about the nuclear enterprise ecosystem, if you will, and how one change in one aspect of it will impact changes in others. Very good. Well, the time sped by. We've come to the end of this segment of our discussion. And General, thanks again for your valuable insights and for sharing time with us and your perspectives. Uh, we wish you the best. As an alert to our listeners, our next event is next Tuesday, April 27th. And it is another installment of this Nuclear Deterrence Forum. Uh, we'll be hosting Matthew Kronig and Matthew Koslow, two senior experts in the national security policy and uh, arena, and we hope you can all join us for that. So we're now going to open the session, General, to questions from our audience who've been listening. As a reminder to our listeners, you can participate using the Q&A function or uh, the raise hand function on the app. When I call on you, please unmute your mic, state your name, your affiliation for the general, and uh, you can also submit a question in writing using the Q&A function and we're ready to go. Uh, first, I'll go to, uh, from Air Force Magazine, Brian Everstein. Brian? Yes, good morning. Uh, General, thanks so much for joining this and thanks for taking my question. Uh, going back to, you talked about the Bomber Task Force. It's now been almost exactly one year since the continuous bomber presence mission wrapped up in Guam. And a few months before that, uh, the deployments to LUD wrapped up. Can you talk a little bit about what ending those continuous deployments has meant for crew readiness, the health of B-52s, and bring more deployed dwell time. Thank you. Hey, a great question. In, you know, in my previous job as 8th Air Force Commander, I, I saw that up close and personal down there at Barksdale. And um, I know that that was a tough decision uh, that had to be made, but I tell you what, it had to be made, and it was the right thing to do. Talking to General Ray, the, the commander of Global Strike Command, he's been on the record as stating that uh, the readiness increases have been breathtaking. The, the B-52 readiness and uh, B-1 readiness, all those that are in B-2 at, at an all-time high. And the units are more capable. So not only is readiness better, uh, the units are more capable. The units are able to service more combatant commanders. And uh, most importantly, it's really, I, I think, kept our adversary on their toes. Uh, or sorry, on their heels, kept the adversary on the heels because they really don't know where we are going to be at any given time. Uh, so uh, while there's no, you know, we're 
strategically able to be across the world in, in quick uh, on quick notice. We're not anchored down in one specific area of the of the world because when we do that, we basically just uh, make them numb to the fact that we're in a, in a particular location. So again, when we're able to be flexible and use dynamic force employment or bomber task force, it really presents a challenge to the adversary's decision calculus. So again, I think it's been a huge uh, win. I think it'll be even pay bigger dividends as we increase our bomber force when we start buying, uh, start procuring the B-21s. Very good, thanks, Brian. Hey, we'll go to uh, Frank Wolf from Defense Daily. And there yeah, you go, hello. Frank. Oh, am, I, am I okay? Yep, we can hear I, yeah. you. Hi, General. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, uh, questions just on the, the 2018 nuclear posture review uh, said that the SSBNs are virtually undetectable and um, basically said that there are no near-term uh, threats to the survivability of the um, Ohio class and then I guess the Columbia class of nuclear submarines. Um, so I just wondered um, in terms of if you modernize NC3 so that you obviously can get communications to the ballistic missile submarine What's the necessity, or what would you say in terms of the necessity of, of uh, either, you know, of the of the uh, uh, land-based leg? That was that was the first question, and the second question was just on Admiral Richard's comments um, in terms of um, those two. He said there were down, as you mentioned, down to two types of a particular kind of switch um, for um, for the launch control centers. Um, there are the cooperative launch. Uh, switches, the CLS switches. I don't know if he was referring to those made by Laral Corp or if it's something, some other switch, or if you could provide anything on that or what, what those switches are, if they're less vital to the mission or whatever. So uh, just, you know, for your second question first, I think that was just a, an example. There are, there are uh, tens, if not hundreds of those type of small components on the Minuteman 3 that, are having, that will have to be manufactured or life extended. So uh, I don't have all the details on those switches. Uh, and so I don't want to confuse because I know there, there are several other switches that are out there that probably need that work as well. On your aspect of the, you know, you talked about the 2018 NPR. Uh, you know, I'm not aware of any near-term threats to the, uh, the submarine force and making the ocean more transparent, but I can't predict the future. And I think trying to, uh, to, make, the, to make assumptions right now and what the future is going to look like in the next 30 years with regard to um, vulnerabilities, I think is uh, short-sighted. And so I think that we need to, uh, again, I think it's a small price to pay uh, to have the ICBMs available as, a, as an insurance policy, not only ICBMs, but uh, the bombers and the standoff cruise missiles that, that accompany the bombers, as well as the, the very important SL, uh, the submarine, you know, submarine part of the deterrent, I think that's key. Again, all those contribute to strategic stability um, and provide a great defense advantage. Thanks for the question. General, we have a question uh, from uh, our, uh, it's from Lee Sengmin. He's a reporter and he's from Radio Free Asia. And I'll generalize this uh, to see how far you can go with it. Uh, whether you could give a bit of an assessment on North Korea's capabilities and our, is our nuclear uh, deterrent postured to deter 
nuclear North Korean aggression? Well, I can't, you know, I won't go into specifics and uh, the furthest type of questions to STRATCOM, but I will say that uh, the way we have our, again, the triad postured, it's able to deter a range of threats. And we have a range of capabilities that can, that can be used uh, against a, an ever-changing and uh, ever-changing world in the threat landscape, whether that's, uh, you know, particularly with nuclear weapons. So, again, I, I think that what we have covers down on, on a range of threats to include these new novel systems that Russia is developing that are outside of New START, uh, again, re-emphasizing that we are just modernizing the basics, a uh, try that's been in existence for over uh, 40 years, in some cases 50 years. Um, and uh, we think that is uh, a good enough approach to all the threats that are out there. Let me uh, follow that up with uh, Kim Dong-young, Voice of America, Korean Service. Mr. Kim, can you unmute there? Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, can you hear me, sir? Yes. Uh, yes. This is Dong Yun Kim. Uh, there are increasing concerns currently among South Korean society, which is now discussing on the possibility of nuclear sharing with U.S. or nuclear nuclear self-arm. And with that in mind, uh, you, you've been discussing of the likely budget cut on the nuclear modernization program. So. How do you, in, in that context, how do you assess the strategic environment in, in regards to the peninsula? And how is U.S. addressing to ensure its extended deterrence? Thank you. So uh, thanks for the question. And, and I, you know, I don't, I'm not assuming there's going to be a budget cut. There, there may be, uh, but again, it's too early to tell. Uh, and the budget will be delivered uh, here in the next uh, month or two to the Hill. Uh, that said, with regard to the extended deterrence and the umbrella that we provide our allies, uh, I really have to refer you to OSD policy. Uh, they are the ones that run point on engagement with our with our allies. But um, should we keep with the current structure that we have, I think that we would be able to reassure our allies that we uh, have the capabilities necessary uh, to protect them from existential threats. So thanks for the question. And last question goes to Wendon Smith. Wendon Smith, unmute yourself. Wendon, yep. It didn't there have the opportunity to unmute until there. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity and thank you, sir, for your remarks. So Wendon Smith from Delete. I'm actually a former DASD and OSD policy and supported SOCOM and the stand-up of the now J-10. So thank you for your service, sir. I have a question, maybe future looking, so perhaps a good way to take away from where we've been, which is in the space of deterrence, but thinking more broadly in future threats in the space of myths and disinformation and how particularly Russia, but certainly other adversaries use myths and disinformation we've seen in the INF Treaty and a few other places to you know, potentially try to undermine our deterrent in a messaging and information warfare way. And I understand that that goes beyond your normal, uh, you know, understanding of the A-10 mission, yet it, you know, certainly uh, intersects. So curious if you have thoughts on that uh, perspectives. Well, well, yeah, I have many. I'll, uh, I'll share just a couple here with you. You know, it, it's a definitely a thread in what's the, the great thing about America is that we have a free and open society and we have freedom of the press and uh, we don't hide things. 
and we're you know we are held accountable for what we say. Our president's held accountable for what he says in his decisions. That's not the case in Russia or China or other other uh, countries around the world. And so the, with great impunity, they can say whatever they want and, and uh, try to get the world to, to believe it without even having to worry about uh, what it might mean to them uh, or whether they're telling the truth or not. So we, uh, it's a challenge, but uh, again, you know, the, the great appeal of America and democracy and all the things that, that we, we value and dear, I think is, is a better narrative and better story than what Russia or China have to offer their people. So thanks for your question. Well, General, we've come to the end of this uh, nuclear deterrence series. A big thanks to you, uh, and I add my thanks for your service and whatever we can do to, for you. Uh, Mitchell Institute is standing Stats, by to help. I think we have some more questions on the, on the uh, Q&A, and um, I know a few folks are asking how to raise their hands. So I think we have a few more questions. Okay, let me take a look here. Okay, got it. So Tom Keeney, good friend of mine, do you anticipate a one-for-one -one replacement of Minuteman or scaled-down numbers? Are the numbers tied to the uh, to the start numbers, the 1550 start numbers? Can you talk to that, Joe? Yeah, hey, the current program of record is uh, to replace uh, the Minuteman uh, with 400 missiles. So, of course, right now, new START treaties in effect, and that, that's sort of the way the United States has determined that it's going to meet its new START obligations is with the 400 Minuteman. And um, again, the program record is, is to replace the Minuteman with the longer. If that changes, that'll have to be a decision the President makes. Very good. And uh, I think this is the last question here uh, from Rick Hartle. What's your view of the health of the industrial capacity the industrial base to modernize the triad? Uh, I think that based on what I've been told, we're in a good spot uh, with, um, with the Columbia class, with Minuteman, I'm sorry, with the GBSD, with B-21. Uh, you know, those programs have been in, in works for, you know, uh, almost a decade in some cases, maybe even a little longer. So we understand the challenges that are out there. I think the industrial base understands the challenges that are out there with those programs. They're fighting, you know, they're working through those challenges. And uh, uh, right now, I, I believe we're on a good path. My concern really is the industrial base if we were asked to extend Minuteman 3. I think that's where we're going to have a lot of problems. Because again, we're going to have to use old technology and old manufacturing means to do some of the, to make some of these old parts. So confidence in the ability to to modernize the tribe with the programs we have underway, less confident, uh, a lot less confident in our ability to continue the life of STEM management three. Very good. Well, I think that's it, General. Uh, thanks a lot again, and uh, I hope you have a great aerospace day. Hey, thanks so much uh, to, to you and your team, and really the audience. I really appreciate the fact that a number of you have signed on and and are participating in this debate. So uh, please continue to ask the hard questions. I know Congress is not going to refrain from doing so. So you'll have a chance to, to hear uh, how the Air Force and how the combat commands and others are approaching this, uh, this dynamic threat environment we face. So again, thank you so much. All good. We'll see you soon, General.